we're sitting here today at Sheba Hospital at Tel Shomer in Israel, and we're interviewing Professor Dr. Theodoro Forstagi, a neurosurgeon who is a distinguished scholar and professor at Queen's University Belfast and the William Clinton Leadership Institute, as well as a professor at the Mayo Clinic Alex Medical School. He recently joined the Scientific Advisory Board of Neurexone Biologic. Neurexone is developing exosome-based therapy for neurological injuries, beginning with spinal cord. I know you came to visit Israel on a personal visit and you decided to extend your stay because of what's happening here. How did you decide to do that? It's the right thing to do. It's as simple as that. I, I happen to have experience in the kind of surgery that involves combat injuries. And um, unfortunately, Israel is facing some pretty dire threats. And um, it seemed like the right thing to do if I could lend my hand and if I could be of help. So you came to Sheba and you said, hey, I'm here, I'm a neurosurgeon, sign me up, pretty much? <laughs> I actually went to people that I knew, both in the medical community and in the military community, and asked whether there was a need. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing you don't want to do in this kind of setting is be a fifth wheel. Mm -hmm. You don't want to come and say, here I am, you know, nobody is a savior, nobody is messianic. The question is, can you be useful and can you fit? And the idea of fit is very, very important. Because if you can't, you don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. You just disrupt things. And fortunately, they, fortunately for me, they said, well, we don't know, but Sheba's the right place to go to. And uh, they were very kind here and found a way to fit me in. Sheba's one of the leading hospitals, I think, in the world. It's one of the 10 best hospitals in the world. And it has an excellent neurosurgery department. It sees trauma when necessary. The neurosurgeons here are all very well schooled, very well trained, superb intensive care, excellent nurses, excellent consultants. This is a great place. Thank you very much. So tell us, what does a neurosurgeon do? So a neurosurgeon is a type of physician, actually a surgeon who operates on the brain, on the spinal cord, and on peripheral nerves, conditions that cannot be treated medically, conditions that involve tumors or trauma, congenital malformations, infections, and other kinds of conditions that affect things that connect the brain and the spinal cord that allow you to move, to think, to act, to balance, to feel. How do you fix them though? How do you, how do you actually go in, you know, and what do you really do? Like you open, when you open up the brain, how do you go in and fix the damage that you see there? It's a great question. It all depends on where it is and what you see the damage to be. Prior to about, oh, the 1950s, the majority of the diagnostic ability was based on the neurological examination. Which is like so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The neurological examination is a series of very, very uh, fixed sequences of tests. Mm -hmm. You check the eyes, you check the sense of smell, the motion and the feeling in the face, the ability to move the lips and the tongue. You check the ability to speak, to understand language, to use written language, to name things, sometimes to rhyme. You check balance. You check the ability to coordinate the arms and the legs. You check the ability to walk. You check muscle tone and muscle strengths. You check the ability to make fine finger motions. 
or to be able to walk on toes and heels. After the 1950s, advanced x-ray techniques entered the world of medicine so that you could not only do the test, but you could localize where the problem was by looking at x-rays. So what you do is to use tests to localize where a problem is. Then depending on the localization, you use different techniques and different approaches to enter the spinal canal or the skull in order to be able to find the pathology. You then sample the pathology to see what it is. And sometimes you don't know before you go in and sometimes you have a pretty good idea. Sometimes you do that on a macro level. So you use a microscope, you use instruments. Sometimes you do it almost non-invasively using a very, very fine needle under MRI or CT control. And you can do an awful lot with that, particularly now. Sometimes you treat a condition like a tumor using very focused radiation as opposed to the general radiation, which everybody knows about for cancer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you use other forms of energy like ultrasound. Sometimes you go inside the blood vessels of the brain and you fix a blister on a blood vessel by means of a coil, or by means of glue, or by means of a stent. So there are different kinds of techniques of greater and lesser degree of invasiveness. You always try to protect function. You always try to do the least necessary and the least possible to get the best possible result. Okay, so, but do you always can see, you can always see something's wrong? Like I used to work for Missouri Robotics and spine surgery, and I know sometimes you would look at somebody's spine and they say, we have terrible pain here, but their spine looks fine. So with neurosurgery, there's always a visual indication on the imaging of what you're going to treat or take care of? You would like to say that at some point there is an image-based difference that you can detect. Mm -hmm. You may not see it. Mm -hmm. And it may not be image-based, it may be energy-based. For example, an EEG, which is to the brain what an EKG is to the heart, shows you electrical activity, may show an abnormality that you can't see. If there's an abnormality that causes a seizure that you can't see, and there's no underlying structural abnormality, generally speaking, that's what a neurologist will treat and not a neurosurgeon. If there's a structural abnormality, then the question will be, can I possibly treat the problem by doing something with the structural abnormality? and prevent the underlying problem or cure the underlying problem without medication or supplementing medication, also doing something surgical. If there's a scar, for example, I might be able to excise the scar and reduce or eliminate the seizures, which still mean the patient may have to take medications, but more successfully. Okay. So you'd like to say that you can always image in the greater sense of the word image and abnormality, but it may not be a visual image. So the idea in medicine is to correlate physiological finding, changes in the body, seek them out, and correlate them with what the patient tells you. Okay. And there are many ways to do that. Wow. And how does our understanding of the brain fit into that? I was, what have you learned? What is the most exciting thing that you've learned about the that? science that we've learned about the brain in the past few years? And what do you really want them to learn? I think there are a few things that we've learned. 
One of them is we used to think that the brain had trouble recovering. And unlike a broken bone, and there's, there's an old saying that if you put two bones in the same room together, they'll knit. <laughs> but the brain is different. And we've all seen people who have strokes and haven't recovered, or tumors and haven't recovered. Truth to tell, there's more recovery going on in the brain and in the spinal cord than we are aware of. And we're beginning to understand that actually you can help the brain recover. Now we're doing it very crudely with the spinal cord to recover. We're doing we're using physical therapy, so we're using physiological means. One of the very interesting developments is an understanding of something called a mirror neuron. So let's say somebody has an injury or a paralysis to one arm. Mm -hmm. One way to train, to retrain the arm is to get the good arm to do exactly what you want it to do, put the other arm in a mirror box, and gradually train the limited arm to mimic the function of the good arm. Does it work perfectly? No, not, I'd say not yet. And that's maybe not the end-all and the be-all in terms of recovery. But recovery can take place. We used to say if you don't recover in three months with physical therapy, maybe a year, no recovery. Not true. You can start having people recover in a year, in two years, continue physical therapy, continue other modalities, and they do recover over time. So that gives tremendous cause for optimism. Is that a breakthrough in therapy or a breakthrough in understanding? It starts as an observation. Okay. Then what you try to do is to optimize the therapy to accelerate the process. And that leads to new theories of how the brain works and how the brain recovers. And that, in turn, leads to new therapies. Okay. So, it's a, so it's a hierarchy. Okay. That's yeah. right. It's a hierarchy. And, and do you think that, like, you know, we know that, like, in, in a state of mind, I can, my brain, if I'm stressed, my brain could do something and reduce that stress, okay? So do you think that we have the potential, actually, to really push neurological processes that will actually heal the body itself from the brain and that we'll be able to trigger them someday? There are two different questions. Okay. Question one, can the mind... And I'd like to separate the mind from the brain because the brain is the organ of the mind. But in fact, we separate the mind and the brain. I, I kind of know where the speech center is, but I'm not sure that everything that I see and I call a name, I could connect point by point between two parts of the brain and tell you that, you know, okay, this is called a Fabergé egg. I don't know what the circuit for that is exactly. So you have the mind, and we know that you can treat the mind and get changes in the body. And that's both improvement and sometimes worsening, sometimes illnesses of the mind. We also know that the brain can affect the mind, and we know that the mind can affect the brain. So all of us learn languages, and they're different languages that people learn. For me, uh, spoken language isn't too hard, but Fortran or basic, I don't do that. I don't do that. But that's a language like any other. Um, when you enter Sheba, there's an hilarious, hilarious prop 
when you enter. It's a, a vitrine, a cabinet, and it has a typewriter. And on the paper that's in the typewriter, on the roller, there's cuneiform. And the keyboard looks like a cuneiform keyboard. So the imagination that goes into that and the idea that you can convert something that requires incising a tablet of clay into a typewriter is fantastic. That's the mind-brain interaction. That's the creative interaction. That's the person who can envision a photograph and capture it on a camera, who takes a pencil and can capture a face or an expression, or a writer who can find just the right words. So we know it can be done. We don't always understand how. Can you heighten it? I think you can. Okay, I can heighten it. If it's, into it, if it's instinctively there, you can heighten it, or you can create it where it doesn't exist. I think we can do an awful lot with people and help them learn. I think that that's one of the greatest things about the human being and the human mind, about um, humanity, is that we can actually learn. Yeah. Fantastic. And I want to move now to the spinal cord a little bit. And walking, I, I have actually four grandchildren, and until I watched them try to crawl and learn to walk, I didn't ever think about how complicated walking is. But it's really complicated, and we do it like that. So can you explain a little bit to us, to lay people, what does it mean to learn how to walk, and how do we do that? It's a tall order to yeah. explain it. Okay. Teach them a little Okay, bit. Let's, start, let's start with the brain. Um, the nervous system and the brain particularly has both neurons, which are cells, and tracts, which are made up of fibers. The brain cells and the spinal cord cells and nerve cells are all connected to fibers. The fibers are the communicating wires. In order to carry out emotion, there's some you have to think about. So, um, you have to think about, I mean, let's say you were illuminating a manuscript. You have to think about where you're going to put the letters on the page, what colors, where you put the gilt, what shape, what size, you have to coordinate them. Some things are more instinctual and reflexive. So if I throw something at you, you'll either catch it or you'll shield yourself. One of the two, maybe both. Some people are very good at these instinctual motions. Catching a ball is a great example. Throwing a ball. Not everybody has the same skill. When it comes to walking, animals that have legs walk. Some animals can walk on four legs or two legs. A bear, for example. Some can fly and walk. Most birds. So human beings start recapitulating, as we understand it, the evolution of the species. So they don't start by walking. The brain says, move. And so they move by crawling. They move by using all fours. And eventually the brain, in some sense, says, in air quotes, says in citation, Okay, now try standing up. So they pull themselves up and they fall. And they do that a few times to the pain and chagrin of the parent and the joy of the child. 
And eventually they get to the point where they can pull themselves up and they look around and they say, hey, this is good. And then they start trying to move. And they do that by holding on to things, by falling and getting up again. And they learn the balance. So the brain says, okay, what you want to do is to move the limbs that are important to walk. First arms and legs, and eventually we do it on legs and we use our arms for balance. We need to know where to put our legs. We need to know the sequence. We need to know what to do with our toes and our feet and how to push off and how not to fall. Now, at the same time, when you learn how to walk, where you put your feet is an important question. How do you position your foot? How do you tense your muscles so that your ankle doesn't collapse? How do you know how to fold your knee and straighten it? How do you push off? How do you bend forward when you go uphill and bend backwards when you go downhill? How do you learn that? Those are things that are learned instinctually, but not entirely, so that mountain climbing is much more instinctual to some people and not instinctual at all to other people. Uh, when somebody learns to use a parachute and learns to do a parachute fall, that's not instinctual. You have to learn to do that so you don't hurt yourself. But clearly some people do it better than others. In children, it's expressed as learning to walk early or, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> or um, learning coordination earlier than other people do. Um, some children are more adept the development of the brain is fascinating. And the spinal cord is a little different. The brain is the center of will and of thought, of directed motion. The, re the spinal cord is more a transmission center. It also has reflexes. So if I take a patient and I tap on their biceps and their their hand or their arm is slightly bent, I can get a reflex. It looks like that. And there's a range of normalcy and a range of abnormalcy. Those are called spinal cord reflexes. And they occur not at the brain level. They occur at different levels of the spinal cord. So the spinal cord is divided into the cervical spine. That's in the neck. The thoracic spine, that's in the chest the lumbar spine that's below the rib cage and attaches to the pelvis. You have nerve roots coming out at each level on each side and the nerve roots do things. So the spinal cord serves to give you sensation and there are different kinds of sensation and reflexes and motor use of the hand, in this case, in the cervical spine. And different parts of the spinal cord have different functions. So the spinal cord doesn't think the way the brain thinks, but the spinal cord serves to transmit the thoughts that you get and the will that you get from the brain to the parts of the body that actually carry out the function that the brain commands. So when somebody, when we talk about a spinal cord injury or let's say an acute spinal cord injury, my brain still knows how to do those things and it's still giving the right commands, but the transmission is interrupted by the injury to the spinal cord? That's correct. That's exactly right. 
So think about having a drawbridge. Mm -hmm. You can drive over the drawbridge so long as the bridge is closed. When you have a spinal cord injury, it's the equivalent of the bridge being open. And unfortunately, heretofore, we've not been able to, using the same term, bridge the gap mm -hmm. between one part of the spinal cord and the other. And it doesn't matter where the spinal cord injury is, if the spinal cord is in the neck or if it's in the lumbar spine, the spinal cord heretofore has been very difficult, if not impossible, to heal. It either recovers on its own or we've been fairly helpless. And so that's the initial part could be an acute injury. Is that a trauma or whatever? And then a chronic condition develops from the acute condition. What is the difference between the acute and the chronic? It's a question of time and events. In an acute injury, let's not use the word injury for a second. Okay. Let's use the word event. Okay. In an acute event that disrupts the spinal cord, the spinal cord does not transmit. That results in a term technically called a level. A level. Okay. You can examine the body and see at what level the spinal cord no longer works or transmits. Next step is to figure out why. It could be a tumor that's bled. It could be an injury and compression of the spinal cord. It could be transection or cut through the spinal cord, which could be real, a physical cut, or it can be a virtual transection. It could be a condition like multiple sclerosis. And in each case, there are two conditions that are possible. One is a partial injury, and the other is a complete injury. Complete injuries can be either physical or they can be vascular. Vascular injuries are like a stroke to the spinal cord. And we tend to distinguish vascular injuries to the spinal cord from compression of the spinal cord, tumors, infections, transections. The more partial the injury, the better the blood supply to the part of the spinal cord that has the injury, the better the likelihood of some kind of recovery. You may not get a complete recovery, you may get a partial recovery. Sometimes the partial recovery is some return of function. Sometimes the partial recovery is almost a complete return of function. It depends on the injury and where it is. Do, you know how, do we know how to predict that? Does medicine know how to predict when you look at an injury, what type of recovery, or you just sort of wait and see what starts to happen? Within limits. So there are rules of thumb. The less the injury, the more minor the injury, the higher the likelihood of recovery. The better the blood supply of the spinal cord at the point of the level, the better the likelihood of an injury. The less apparent physical damage on a CT, on an MRI, the better the likelihood of recovery. The younger the patient, the fewer complications, diabetes is a complication, the better the likelihood of recovery. If a person has partial function at the time of injury, a little bit of motion of the shoulder, a little bit of motion of the thumb, bladder function, that's, 
that gives rise to optimism. Okay. And what is it that you feel about uh, Nurexone, the, the, the solution that Nurexone is developing, the therapy that excites you, that makes you say, wow, I really, I wanted to join this company? So for years, people have been looking how to repair the spinal cord or nerve roots or brain. The principles are pretty much the same, even though the systems are just a wee bit different. So for years, people have been trying to do it. They've sewn it together. They've glued it together. They've built scaffolds. Um, they've used stem cells. They've, trans they've, they've transplanted nerves. Results have not been good. You have to base what you do clinically on animal studies, experimental studies, and models of spinal cord injury. Neurexome is not yet in humans, but the animal data and the uh, basic science data suggest in a very, very compelling way that this technology may help bridge the gap that occurs when the spinal cord is injured or hurt. It's the only thing we have to go on. And whether this will actually be useful in humans, I pray it will be, it would be fantastic. But whether it will be useful in humans, even if it's only partially useful, even if it only gives you a partial recovery, if it lets you convert a severe spinal cord injury into a mild spinal cord injury, or gives a recovery in mild spinal cord injury, or if it also turns out to help in strokes or other injuries of the nervous system, or peripheral nerve injuries, that's a huge advance for the patient. It means functionality, means independence, it means hope from despair, and it means that it'll teach us other things that we can do to get even better. So I'm very, very encouraged by what I see here. And it's really a privilege to be with this group of scientists and this technology in the hope that we're going to be able to make this kind of a difference. Why Nurexone? What's special about the leadership and the team of this company, the people, not just the amazing technology? One of the things that's really important in the startup medicine is who the scientists are what the provenance of the science is, what the data are, how carefully the data have been evaluated, what the claims are when the data are published, and what the underlying proof is. You want to work with scientists, whether in a laboratory or in a company, who are fastidious about their intellectual honesty and who are fastidious about the data. Data don't always hold up. And your job as a scientist is to have a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a statement of what you think is true. And then to prove it. If you prove it, you need to be able to explain why the proof that you have enlisted and recruited is relevant. And if you don't have the proof, you have to be able to admit it. Look for the mistakes. Fix them if you can. You want a company and a scientific team that sets up a series of relevant experiments. And I'm not talking about mad scientist experiments. Experiments to ask a question, understand the mechanism, prove a point. And set up a series of experiments 
so that whichever way the experiment ends, whether you prove the hypothesis or you don't prove the hypothesis, it's first of all, correct, second, relevant, and third, it leads you to further scientific discovery. That is particularly the case in spinal cord injury. That is particularly the case in medicine because you're dealing with human beings. And the consequences of what you do are so important that you want to be as careful and as certain as you can be. You can never be 100% certainty. That doesn't exist. But you want to be certain enough to be able to go to the next stage. And when you get to human beings, you want to be certain enough so that the benefit as opposed to the risk of the treatment is justifiable. And this group of scientists does a very good job of meeting those standards. Oh, that's fantastic. That's so important. And I know you've seen, you've been involved in different uh, biomedical startups. You've, you know, that's also, I focused on your medical background at the beginning, but you also have a background as a, as a biomedical entrepreneur. The next question is really, Norexone recently announced that we received orphan drug designation from the FDA for the XOP10 drug. Can you explain the benefits? The idea of having a drug for spinal cord injury which is fewer than 200,000 per year in the United States, fortunately, allows it to benefit from the orphan drug designation and the orphan drug process. And in the case of this drug, it probably will mean smaller, faster trials, less cost to the trials, and quicker to market. What I understood from Lior is that uh, orphan drug designation in the field of acute spinal cord injury, there aren't that many of them. So is it a real acknowledgement of the, pro of the therapy that, that Norexo is developing? It's a very good question. I think it's an acknowledgement of the fact that the data are extremely strong and very promising. Will it put neurosurgeons out of business, do you think? I hope so. Yeah. I don't think so. But it would be nice. You know, every, every neurosurgeon would like to have a way of having the Harry Potter wand and becoming not irrelevant, but certainly being able to find better ways than just operating. We want to get patients better, whatever it takes. Wow, amazing. Well, it's a privilege to speak to you. Very happy to have you on board at Norexone Biologic. Thank, Thank you, you very much. And, uh, pleasure. Thank you very much.